0: Well, hello, With Gratitude Matt listeners. My name is Bill Moran, and I'm Matt's older brother, and today I will be your host for our show, With Gratitude Matt. With Gratitude Matt is a place people can come to find the courage to be grateful, regardless of how powerful the storm is. Matt started the blog, WithGratitudeMatt.com, to track his cancer journey. Our goal with Gratitude Matt is to reach and inspire more people and help them use gratitude on a regular basis. As many of you know, Matt passed away on August 20th. Matt's wife, Mary, and the entire family want to continue to help people through this podcast to find the courage to be grateful. Please know that Matt and the entire family appreciated all your love, prayers, support, and generosity during his journey. His wife, Mary, and our entire family are so grateful and blessed to have your continued support. I am humbled and honored to be here today. Today, I'm super excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Chris Kerr. Dr. Kerr has earned both an MD and a PhD in neurobiology. He is the chief executive officer and chief medical officer for hospice and palliative care in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Kerr realized that many of his patients in hospice had extraordinary experiences as death approached. As a result, he designed studies that would tabulate these experiences in a meaningful way. These experiences are enormous gifts to the dying and those of us left behind. They impact the bereaved because how people leave us matters. How we grieve is impacted by how we experienced their deaths. Dr. Kerr has shared his findings and the importance of these end-of-life experiences to the world most notably in an award-winning TED Talk titled I See Dead People, Dreams and Visions of the Dying. He authored a book titled Death is But a Dream, Finding Hope in Meaning at Life's End, and released a movie of the same name. In addition, Dr. Kerr continues his work, his research, and is helping his patients and their families realize a more meaningful and purposeful end-of-life experience. I first became aware of Dr. Kerr through Matt, his wife, Mary, and Mary's brother, Dr. Ed Cosgrove. Matt spent his final days under the careful and loving care of Dr. Kerr in Hospice of Buffalo. When I asked Dr. Kerr if he would be a guest on With Gratitude, Matt, he jumped at the opportunity. Welcome, Dr. Kerr, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Finn. Thank you for the kind introduction.
0: Well, it's, it, I could have gone on and on, but uh, <laughs> we, wanted to, we wanted to get to the importance of your uh, research and your findings, and we're, I'm just so grateful to have you here today. So, Dr. Kerr, I'm going to kind of lead in. We'll start at the beginning. So, you devoted your career, your energy, and your research to end-of-life experiences. I know it's a long answer, but how did that come about?
1: Unintentionally and by accident. Uh, <laughs> I was... Um, I had no interest in this area of medicine at all. Um, I actually uh, was a cardiology fellow and I worked in the ER with Ed Cosgrove um, for many years. And I was just moonlighting and came to hospice um, completely uneducated and uninformed on what it meant to be caring for people at the end of the life because in training, we typically signed off on these people because there was nothing more to do to them. Um, and I was just struck immediately that there was so much I didn't understand. There's the dying, we obviously observe uh, physical decline and lessening, um, but that but the, there was a subjective side, there was the experiential side that the patient was experiencing. And it was really paradoxical to the physical side that they were actually very rich, vibrant, and very much alive in there. And, um, the work grew out of a frustration in trying to teach it to medical students, um, because we live in an evidence-based time that this that you know there's nothing on this kind of thing. And of course, the, the irony is it's been always been written about throughout time and across cultures, but it wasn't in medical language, you know, our language. So that's why we did the studies to give our listeners a little bit of a glimpse to to your you're a
0: medical doctor, you yep. have a PhD in neurobiology. But then you, through your writings and your research, you came to the conclusion that dying is more of a human experience than a medical experience. Can, can you kind of expand on that?
1: Yeah. So what, what's happened over time is medicine gets more advanced. Um, we become ever more enamored by the science of medicine, but not its art. Um, and dying is really something that uh, we, we're, we're sort of death-denied and death-defying. And somehow dying, which really is a closing of a life and inevitable, um, has become this medical problem to solve. And that's why the majority of Americans don't want to die in the hospital but end up dying in the hospital because that's where they're recognized. There's this sense that we can always, like we're consumers of healthcare, and there's always something we can do to prevent (laughs) dying. And we treat it as organ failure, like failing parts, not, again, a holistic view of it, which is the closing of a life. In your writings and
0: you, your research, you use the phrase end-of-life experiences. And and kind of for the listeners, what does all that entail? And what at hospice do you offer to help that journey?
1: Yeah. So end-of-life experiences, it's it's really tricky nomenclature. We use that to describe the, the subjective inner processes of dying. Um other words used, the, the closest that language we have is kind of dreams or visions or that sort of thing. The reason why it's sticky for us is that if you talk to people about them, the, they're adamant this isn't a dream, right? And the, the, I don't. They say I don't remember my dreams, or this was very different. These aren't tend not to be fantastical or metaphorical or require analysis. They're based on real life events, and when we measure. Um, realism on a 1 to 10 scale, they tend to be a 10. So they feel lived experience. But that's the term we use as end-of-life experiences.
0: You kind of touched on this in a comment earlier, but in the Western medical world, we don't really maybe talk about this as much. We talk more about the weather than maybe we do about end-of-life experiences. And maybe you can kind of explain a little bit of the why behind that.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's... um. You know, it's become easier to live longer, but higher, higher to di- harder to die well. <laughs> and um, yeah. you know, we view it through this medical paradigm. And when you do that, you focus on body parts. Um, that wasn't true even a generation ago. Uh, I mean, we grew up and we would say, you know, how did Grandma die? She well, she died of old age. Right. <laughs> but you were right. allowed to die of old age. Now you right. you, you know you're going to have ten diagnoses. diagnoses and more likely die in the hospital. So it's sad because dying is um, a reflective experience. It's a different vantage point. You naturally look back on life. Um, You you stop caring about your taxes or whether your oil change, and you start to focus on the things that matter. So it's not surprising then that um, there are these inner experiences that are very, very, very different um and and that that that's what the patient the patient doesn't experience liver failure they don't experience kidney failure they experience life at its end um and there's a richness inside to that you know we did this really interesting study where we looked at dying as a, as a as a as a traumatic experience and this idea of post-traumatic growth like the idea you could go to war and yes it's a negative experience but there are positive attributes like friendships, for example. Um, And when we did that in dying, what we found was fascinating. It's actually measurable. Yes, they're physically declining, but paradoxically, they're emotionally, psychologically, spiritually very much alive, and people don't stop learning and adapting right until the very last days of life. So the the take-home basically is the dying patient doesn't stop living because they're dying. And there's actually a profound amount of living to do that's deeply meaningful. If you think of your own situation, what it did to strengthen and draw the inner dynamics of your relationships right closer and more meaningful um, in very profound and important ways, Um, that's just part of this. And if if we had one aim in this whole effort, it it is to demedicalize the process and reclaim it as a humanizing process, and one in which the patient should always have a say.
0: That, that's a gift that you give the patient, and that care that you're giving is, is well, it's beautiful. It's so powerful. Um, I'm going to shift a little bit over. This is the 73rd podcast. Matt did 71 of these, and I'm kind of taking it over and carrying the torch here for the family. But One of the things that Matt did in a lot of his episodes was he he got real, he got vulnerable, and he was able to kind of shed a little bit of light of his journey and how that might help others. But the one thing that, and maybe you can help because you cared for and your team cared for Matt on his final days, but Matt owned his journey. He owned his health. He, He owned his diagnosis. And why is that important for both the patient And the family when they're going through these end-of-life experiences
1: oh i think it's wonderful i think advanced illness in itself and i can speak from experience dying in particular um, there is a loss there's a surrendering a loss of ultimate control over the thing that matters most, which is the trajectory of your existence, right? And there's a risk in that, in that one, you can be victimized to your circumstance. Um, you can be totally defined, and we see this by illness. So I'm no longer a human, right? I'm not seen in the totality and dimensionality of my existence. I'm seen as as a medical problem um so anytime anyone takes the stage in their own story um and give voice to something larger and i think what's unbelievable is how often people change perspective they 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 don't lose hope hope changes so hope changes from cure to hope for um others And it's a wonderful aspect in the human story that actually people do come to some understanding of of where they are generally. Um, But what they don't stop caring, they still care. It's just for other people, how are they going to be and how are they doing? And so there's this idea that they want to give and give and give of themselves. Um, So this podcast series, for example, is an example of that. You got somebody struggling to get through a day, experiencing physical symptoms that you and I can't really relate to or say we even come close to understanding. Yet, what matters most, perhaps, is that um, he he was giving of himself to others, and that's the most redeeming quality in our struggle to remain humane. Um, is that is that we continue? um, to, to, to bring meaning and love and value for, uh, for other people. And that sickness doesn't limit that, um, but actually can enhance it, um, is powerful and is returns their controls to you. so it makes sense to me.
0: That's beautiful. And I'm so happy that Matt was in your care and in your team's care. It was incredible. And, I do have to confess, so, you know, when Matt, um, he called me and he said he was, uh, he said he was going to hospice and, uh, we exchanged, you know, we told each other, we loved each other. And, and, uh, I really struggled with whether with his mortality, I mean, you know, up till that point, you know, we knew the diagnosis was tough, but we also knew, um, who Matt was. And I looked at you know, he's my younger brother. He's athletic, he's handsome, he's a devoted father, he's a loving husband, he's a faithful Catholic and he's gonna be called to heaven. And I was conflicted, honestly, on whether to drive from Cincinnati to Buffalo to be with him. I had just been up there two weeks earlier and I tried to keep myself busy, but I knew I needed to be, be with Matt. I was I was there when mom and dad brought him home from the hospital and I knew I had to be at his bedside when When I was going to walk him to heaven, and fortunately, my family told me that I needed to get up there and and uh, to use Matt's word, I'm grateful I did. When I arrived at Matt's bedside, I gave him a kiss, I gave him a hug, I told him I loved him, and uh, then I gave him a few more kisses and I gave him a few more hugs, and I said those were from each of his family members. And uh, Matt responded with a beautiful smile, and it's. Really, it's hard to describe how beautiful that smile was, but to use your words, that was a gift, and that's a gift that I get to carry, and I get to share, and I'm sharing it here today, and I know others have lost loved ones, and they've experienced very similar experiences um, like this, but how important is that experience at the bedside with a loved one who is you know, at their end of life, Doctor How how
1: I I think well you said this at the beginning, how people leave us matters, right? And um you can either it can be defined as empty, um, without any redeeming qualities, dehumanizing, um, void of any spirituality, um of love, um or it can be this remarkable, incomparable experience where you feel something better, um, and that's what he you made sure you shared with him. You're, you, it's interesting when you describe the story. You didn't focus on the physicality of his appearance. You didn't focus um, on the sadness of seeing him transformed physically. What he may have been suffering with, or whether it was cough, trying to breathe, you focused about what was um, inside. You know, it's interesting that this is largely focused on gratitude. We did this large-scale study that we haven't published, but we're just finishing to write up, because caregiving is so often described in negative terms. If you looked at the books on caregiving and you found out you were going to be one, you'd go to a bridge and jump. You know, it's all measured in terms of You know, the vernacular of our time, your life balance and all that other bullshit. It's just, (laughs) and, and and the funniest thing is though, if you actually talk to caregivers, what they will tell you essentially is that that was the best, hardest thing I've ever done. And so we did this study and we used, there's measures of gratitude. And, um, what we found was, uh, enormous gratefulness, um, that uh, and f- the weird part was the harder the lifting during the caregiving, the more gratitude. So it's inversely proportional to struggle. So, so, so the, this uh, was in the care team
0: and the family members. In that the are...
1: family, the yeah, the caregivers of the patient. The, the, the important thing is caregiving is such a more uh, such a larger experience that's felt um, not at a transactional level of cleaning, feeding but it's felt at a deep um, spiritual and psychological level. Well,
0: it's almost like it's a vocation, really, in
1: addition. You no, know, you said something, you touched on it in an odd way. So, what caribbean does is it stop? you touched on it a couple of ways. It stops you from running on the rat wheel of your life, okay? You, you're an attorney, you've got obligations, and you said it. And, oh, I stopped, and I went to Buffalo, right? <laughs> So you stop your life, and then the next thing you said is you brought reverence and remembrance to your family members that you remember who had who, who some level you're connected, that's defining, and you shared their gestures of love in a kiss and a hug to him. So what caregiving does is it's not elective. It forces you to pause and find meaning and worth and redemption and love in what truly matters for being here. And it has to come to surface and be expressed. And you did those things. So you're busy going along the day. Boom, you hit the brakes. You turn your car, come up here, um, and you've, you went from being busy in life to focusing on what matters from your life. And, you know, it was beautiful you described him from seeing him come home from the hospital to see him at the end, so you you, you see it in its panoramic form, and it's even richer. Um, that's that's gratitude.
0: Well, thank you. And in 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 the I was just the vessel. It, I was the lucky one to be there, and the family was too. Mary and my sisters and everyone was. So it was like to use your words, it was life affirming, not life denying. So. You said it more eloquently when you talked about your caregivers, but I, you know, I described it as um, beautiful and sad all at all the same time. So, yeah. One of the things that I've noticed in your book, and especially in the powerful, and I encourage, and we in the show notes, we're going to provide links so that the listeners can really dive into your book, your your TED talk. And really, I think the interviews that you had with the patients were so powerful. One of the things that Matt always tried to remind his listeners was to be present. And I noticed that message in your research and in your studies. How is that important and what have you observed with being present?
1: It, it's hard work in um, getting to the point where... Um, You can work through the grief, whether experiencing or anticipated, the sense of loss, the injustices, um, saying goodbye. The the only way that happens is if you're open to seeing something um, that has more value and, as you said, affirms rather than denies life. And that only happens by being present. And I think it's so easy to distract ourselves. I do it every day, um, with with the truly irrelevant, um, and 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 be unpresent and unmindful. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I really, that that's what brought me here was that when I was removed from the hospital and the allure of all the technology and the acts of doing. And a full team, and you're just compelled. It's just you, patient, and you're at the bedside, and you got no tricks, and you can't role play. That's the, So you, you're forced to bring, um, you're forced to being present. And all you have is presence. Um, and sometimes that doesn't even require language, it's just being present, it's, it's learning how to be a comforter. Um, and that what you have to give is just what you got, and um, your shared past, like you did with your brother. So it's all that, yeah,
0: that's beautiful and 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 so powerful. And I I hope the listeners get the impact of that because that is amazing. Um, the findings that you made and you've lived it, you were real, you did it, you were present for those patients, and and one of the things that. You know, we've talked about this end of life experience and and the effect on the dying, and then also on the family members. But how does that carry over to the grieving process? And what kind of getting back again? We've mentioned it twice already. You know how you leave us matters, and how can that help? What you're doing and what you've observed, how can that help those that are grieving?
1: Oh, it helps immensely, and we've done we've published studies on this with about seven hundred and fifty. Bereaved family or loved ones. And as you said, how, how people leave matters. And it, it, you can view death in terms of its finality and the end point, or you can see in it um, the opportunity to connect to something larger. So, you know, the, the clearest example that we've seen many times, and you've got a couple who may have um, lost a child at or shortly after birth. And they've been together for 60 plus years. And at the end of the life, the one person is actually feels the presence or talking to this lost child. Um, and that's the best example of inverting dying to empty and without redeeming qualities to something that actually, again, validates having lived and mattered. And what it also does is it connects, usually, it connects the person at the bedside to the experience so that what you end up feeling is that, that there isn't, there, there's isn't this connectivity across lives, whether they're living or, or not. And so it gives a, a version of a better story. And when we looked at bereavement, and there's tools to measure bereavement, you know, how do you remember, how do you get through, how do you have a still of a relationship, um, how do you cope? People who experience these things um, absolutely um, changes how you process loss, um, and I, also how you have re- reverence. Um, it's uh yeah. The videos of the family, I think, are as compelling as they are. Um, the 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 patient. I don't know if you saw. Um, the one I'm bringing this up because I was just looking at it with a, somebody um, a, a lady named Sue whose mom was very demented but as she's getting closer to death she's waking up and she's sharing these wonderful stories because every time she's closed her eyes she's with her deceased husband and so she's actually living a better richer happier existence kind of present and, and, and connected in love and at the end of her life Um, she tries to escape the facility, and what she's doing is she's reliving her wedding day. So she's got to get to Niagara Falls. So when you'd expect escalating psychogenic distress as one's life's closing, she's actually reclaiming lost love. And it's just amazing. So when you hear the daughter talk, and she talked about because you asked this question about the the caregiver and the breed. She actually talked about how nice it was to go visit her mom towards the end of her life because spiritually and psychologically, she was just in this wonderful place and she had these great stories to share about her husband.
0: That certainly will help us all as we experience this in our own lives. Um So, you know, I don't want to take too much more of your time and I, cause I know you're you've got some great work that you're working on, but if you could kind of share to the listeners some of the exciting ventures that you're working on and kind of where they can learn more about, you know, what you're doing and just kind of get a, give us a glimpse into the exciting news that you might have coming down the. I,
1: I think the most important thing for your listeners is um, to look at, uh, uh, I can't remember the exact linkage, but if you look at um, Hospice Buffalo End of Life Dreams or Visions or, or Hospice Buffalo Patients on YouTube, there's a bundle of videos because I, I can't do this justice. You really have to hear from the patients and families um, themselves because they're they're really quite moving. Yeah, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of interesting things. We're working with an Emmy and Academy Award winner on a film that um, they were working with the Indigenous people in Brazil and Australia and who have had all these cultural beliefs all along, and they're coupling that with our research. And kind of the take-home is this has always been part of the human experience. It's not something newly discovered but lost. Um, and that's really cool that we're working on. Um, and then we have uh, just a number of really interesting studies that we're doing as well. Well, we'll, we'll encourage the listeners, in, like I said earlier in
0: our show notes, to to refer to that, and, and that we'll be sure that they get that information and 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 again, words don't do it justice. The power of those uh, video interviews with the family and with the patients—it's it's it's, it's a very impactful. Um, so, Doctor Kerr, I'm I'm so grateful that we met through Matt, Mary, and the Cosgrove family. I want to thank you for your team's care of Matt and of his family. That's most appreciated. Um, I want to thank you for bringing peace, compassion, and grace. And love to all those that, that you care for in their final chapter of their earthly life. Um, is there anything that you would like to add as kind of a closing remark here?
1: Well, I just, I just think um, it's fun talking to you not only because you've obviously given this great depths of thought, but I, I think it's part of this story of gratitude and reverence for your brother that is. Um. That, that helps uh, ex- give give death and loss a very different experience um, a meaning um, so I really congratulations it's uh it's a heavy obligation and uh, but you're doing it well so congratulations to you it's it's my uh, it's my privilege to do it and
0: and again I'm just the 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 voice behind it uh, I have the whole entire, Cosgrove and Moran families uh, behind me, you know, encouraging and, and supporting us. But um, so one of the things that Matt would always close with and, and kind of remind his listeners of, um, you know, he met roadblocks and his dedication, work ethic, and willingness to help others on his journey was uh, his gift to us. And we want to continue that. Doctor, I see that in your life and in your work, and thank you for that, and thank you for all those you've cared for. Thank you. Um, We're so inspired by what you've said here today and the work that you've done. I'll remind our listeners to put into practice Dr. Kerr's message and learn how they can apply some of his uh, lessons to their daily lives. Matt reminded us there are three things that we can do. Find the courage to be grateful, regardless of how powerful the storm is. Be present with those that we are around. Pay attention to what we are feeding our mind, our body, and our soul. Again, a tremendous thank you to our today's guest, Dr. Chris Kerr. Remember to subscribe to this show. Share it with friends and comment on the show. With Gratitude Matt listeners, until next time, find the courage to be grateful. Godspeed, my friends.